Guys, I'm, I'm going to say something that you never want to hear somebody teaching say, which is, I'm going to go long today. So <laughs> I've thrown it out there. You're warned. Quit looking at your watches. Mike's going long, and Mike knows he's going long. So not too long, I hope. Hey, last week we looked at a cautionary tale, kind of a wild, almost a mythical-like Greek tale. You got a talking donkey and some odd elements in the story of Balaam. We looked at that last week and sort of to give a context before we get into this morning, you remember Israel had left in the exodus out of Egypt. They'd went to Sinai for a couple of years. They got the covenant. God met with them. He sent them up to the land of promise. They said, we don't want to go. He said, okay, you won't. You're going to perish in the next 38 years or so in the wilderness instead. And it's your children that you thought would perish in the attempt to go in, they're the ones that are going to go into the land of promise instead. So where we're picking up and where we were last time with Balaam, Israel is poised on the east side of the Jordan River right across from Jericho. And they're getting ready to go in. And, and so this story happens right before they go in. Moses is still alive, but he's going to die really quickly. And the story of Balaam is what we're picking up today. So last week we looked at Balaam, the pagan prophet, King Balak of Moab had hired him, curse Israel, we can't take them militarily, if you curse them, maybe we can get by them. God uses Balaam to bless Israel instead, he's unable to curse them. But he does tell King Balak, what you can't do by frontal assault, you can do by the side, so you invite them to worship your God with you. Tell them there's a barbecue, come along with us and invite them to join you. And so that's where we're going to pick up again today. This is Numbers 25. If you've got your Bible, Numbers 25. And again, in a little bit, we'll look at some of Numbers 31. So picking up right in that same story from last week, uh, while Israel lived in uh, Shittim, there on the east side of the Jordan, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab, strong word, graphic word there. God doesn't apologize for that. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And guys, remember what we're talking about here. Israel's in a covenant with Yahweh. Israel is God's people. God is their God. It's like a marriage. It's meant to be seen like a spiritual marriage. So there's this unique relationship. And God's told them, no idolatry. You don't diss me by going to somebody else's house, somebody else's spiritual bed, if you will. That's why God uses a strong term like whore with the daughters of Moab. It's, it's unseemly and it's meant to be. So Israel is now worshiping another God before they've even made it into the land of promise. So it says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away. God is not happy with his people over this. Turn away from Israel. Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. So we want to get this image that there's been spiritual adultery. Men from Israel have gone and they've worshipped Baal. 
And in this angry response, God says, I want you to take a sword or a spear and you're killing all the leaders of Israel that participated in that. Guys, this is graphic. Can you think of this? These are people you know. These might be relatives. You're to kill them and then you're to display their bodies in the sun. It's a shameful act. You know, you think of Roman crucifixion, they would put a body up on a cross and they leave the body there. It's a warning to everybody else, don't do what these folks did. God says essentially the same thing here. These are Jews. These are people in covenant with Him. He says you're to slay them and then you're to expose their bodies in the sun. And then the judges in your midst that haven't participated, you're to go out and you're to kill all the men under your administration who have participated in this as well. So this is bloody. It's extreme. This is what God tells Israel to do. So, with that in mind, and the image you probably can't see here, but the stakes, so you guys look at the image on the right side, those are supposed to be men exposed to the sun. Their corpse is hanging there in the sun. At verse 6, Behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family. The Moabites and the Midianites were in this together, this call to idolatry. And in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So you got to get the picture. So Moses and the godly Jews, they're meeting before God. It's a church service. They're meeting before God at the tent of meeting. God's presence is there. And they realize what they're guilty of, what they as a nation collectively are guilty of. They feel terrible about it. They're weeping. They're before God repenting. It's humility. It's humbling. And a Jewish guy, Zimri, brings a Midianite gal, Cosby, and it infers that they are physically sporting with one another while these guys are weeping in front of the tabernacle. So it would be here, if we're in here and we're solemnly lamenting before the Lord and somebody's in the lobby uh, committing immorality, that's the image, that's what's going on here. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose, he left the congregation, he took a spear in his hands, and he went after the man of Israel into the chamber. He pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. One long thrust with a spear. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. So guys, you've got this. There's idolatry. God says, slay the leaders. Now you remaining judges, you slay the rest of the people that participated. And while that's going on, God is by a plague, by God's hand, not by their hand. God is killing Jews because of the corporate responsibility over this sin. So when Phineas gets up with his spear and he kills Zimri and... and Thank you. <laughs> the plague stops. It would have continued. It would have continued on and more Jews would have died. So at verse 10 it says this, The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back My wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with My jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in My jealousy Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his seed, descendants after him, 
the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for his people. And you'll see this brought up, by the way, I think the reference is on your study sheet, Psalm 106, verses 30 through 31. It implies that every generation of Phineas' descendants would have a righteous man present, someone that was living righteously before the Lord. When I was reading that, it occurred to me, I assume that promise is still being fulfilled today. I assume there's a righteous descendant of Phineas today living on the earth that has a living relationship with God through faith in Christ. That was the promise. You'll never lack a righteous man before me in every successive generation. So guys, we have a... This is one of those stories that Christians often shy away from because it's bloody, it's gory, and it's hard to explain. In this case, we know Phineas's action is what stopped God's judgment on Israel. So 24,000 have already died, but no more than that. And if you notice, God praises Phineas because he was jealous with God's own jealousy. That term jealous or jealousy is used four times in this passage. And the Hebrew there is the word kana. It's defined as the fierce determination of God to tolerate no rival whatsoever. So Phineas is hailed as a hero of faith because he shares God's kind of jealousy for God's honor and God's things in this unique relationship. And we want to remember again, this is God's covenant people. You remember, he's redeemed them out of Israel. He has said, you're mine and I'm yours. It's like a spiritual marriage. You'll see the same language throughout the Old Testament. And so to betray this, to, to fall to idolatry, we need to think in the terms of its spiritual unfaithfulness no different than a husband or a wife committing adultery, forsaking the spouse of their youth for someone else. It's an unclean thing. It's a vile thing. It's a destructive thing. That's, that's the take as we go in. Now we say that's extreme, isn't it? Uh, God's wiped out at His hand 24,000. He's had His leaders kill more. That's extreme. And guys, the extremity only gets more so. The story's continued in Numbers 31. Turn there if you want in your Bibles. But God basically says this. He says, get a thousand warriors from each tribe, 12,000 total. I want you to go through Midian and I want you to wipe them out. I want you to wipe them out, destroy them entirely because of what they've done to you and pulling you away from me. So they do it. They go through their camps, they go through their towns, they kill all the men, they take all the stuff, the booty of war, they take it all, they take the women and the children, and they come back to Israel and to Moses. And this is what happens, starting at verse 15. Moses said to them, have you let all the women live? Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. In other words, the people you've brought back are part of what has engendered the loss of life and faithfulness in Israel. Now therefore kill every male among the little ones. Kill the little boys, God says. Kill every woman who has known man by lying with him. All the young girls who have not known man by lying with him keep alive for yourselves. Now this is horrendous. So does this hit you in the gut? Because it should. And I, I found it refreshing in reading commentaries on this. 
the guys who write the commentaries, they, they point this out. The academics point out the visceral, gut-wrenching scene that this brings to your mind. So God says you've killed the guys and you've destroyed them, but the women who were part of this enterprise to, to bring Israel down, they're going to go, and so are the little kids. Little boys are going to go too, the males. Now, if you read only the details of this story and you didn't have context and you, ha you didn't have dates, this sounds like what ISIS did in the Middle East, doesn't it? So they go through, they wipe out villages, they kill men, women, and children. They take the stuff they can use. They take women specifically. Stories are still coming back of this. And so it's a, it's a valid question to ask, what's the difference between what God commanded and ISIS? Why is what God commanded praised by God, but we would absolutely condemn what ISIS has done in the Middle East in what we could call their unholy jihad? What's the difference? So these are huge questions, by the way, and I hope you have good answers for them. <laughs> we're, 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 uh, I'm going to cover this very, very briefly this morning so we can get to the points we want to make, but it comes in the middle of a gory, bloody horrendous story so we want to acknowledge all of that and also say our points of dealing with this this morning are inadequate you do a message or a series of messages just on this whole element of the of the way god brings about death or requires death in his dealings with man on the earth we don't have time to do all that but we'll say a few things uh, to clear some of that away so that we can proceed with the main message we could certainly say this Whatever the danger that was presented by Moab and Midian to God's program and God's people, it must have been an extreme threat or you wouldn't have seen this kind of command by God. So whatever's going on, it must, it must need an extreme remedy. It must be an extreme condition. We can start there. I also want to quote Norm Geisler on this. And, and this isn't just true in this story in numbers uh, if you know what god commanded of the people of israel they are to displace or they are to kill every canaanite in the land of promise and he tells them in deuteronomy he says in part this he says if you don't do that the people of the land will become thorns in your eyes and in your side They'll mitigate your ability to see clearly. You will be harmed. And it says, because you will cave to their idolatry. So with that as a background, Norm Geisler says this, God's judgment was akin to surgery for cancer or amputation of a leg as the only way to save the rest of a sick body. Just as cancer or gangrene contaminates the physical body, those elements in the society, if their evil is less left to fester, will completely contaminate the rest of society. Geisler point is this, and I think this is the main point to be had. It's that this is uh, death to promote life. Whether you think of amputation or cancer treatment, we're trying to kill some cells. We're getting rid of elements in the body that are going to bring the body to death, not life. So we do something radical. We cut off an arm. We treat cancer with radiation or drugs that otherwise would kill you. And we're doing it. We're taking extreme measures so that life is preserved. Ultimately, so that life is preserved. And I think that's the bottom line. 
we'd also say this, guys. So if you see, and if you imagine these stories in your mind's eye, uh, men slaying children or women, uh, battles, spears, and so, it's bloody, it's gory, it's a visceral response to us uh, emotionally. What, what do you do with that? Not really sure. But physical death is not the worst thing that happens to a person. And Greg's already referenced that. So from Adam and Eve till today, save two recorded in the Old Testament, every person that's ever born on the earth in prior generations has died. And all of us, unless the Lord calls us first, we're going to die. All of us. It's happened to everyone, right? So it can happen in old age. It can happen in youth. It can be an auto accident. It can be violence. Young or old, everybody's going to die. Physical death is not the worst thing. And even if it's painful or gory, physical death is still not the main thing. And so we want to make sure that we get past the emotional assault of the story to ask what's the bigger issue behind it. And we can say for sure, this is what Jesus said in Matthew 10.28, don't fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather fear Him who has power to destroy your life physically and to put you in hell forever. That's the one to fear. So we say the worst thing that can happen to anyone is to die without Christ and live apart from God and His goodness in hell forever. Bar none, there's nothing else that remotely compares to that. Think of Revelation 20 and the great white throne judgment when it says that earth gives up all the dead that have ever died and they stand before Jesus and it says they're judged by the books. If you're a Christian, you're not judged by the books as far as eternity. You have the standing and the merit of Christ and you're judged for the works in the sense of what God can reward you for. Friends, these guys have no rewards. Everything is about the level of condemnation in eternity in the lake of fire forever. So that's the worst thing that can ever happen. All of us die. So even though a story like this has this huge visceral emotional response, it's not the most important thing. Heaven and hell is the most important thing. Eternal life or eternal death is the most important thing. Phineas and those who carried out the purge, they were extremists in their jealousy for God, and God praises them for that because what they do engenders life. We're in the 19th message in the Heroes and Villains series, and you remember heroes display Christ-like faithfulness. Villains, dis uh, they look like satanic, unchrist-like faithlessness. And really, the message is one this morning of extremes, and we're usually uncomfortable with extremities and with extremes. Today, if you call someone an extremist, it's uh, Islamic terrorists, it's uh, wacko religious fundamentalists, um, radicalized Muslims, those are the extremists today. Most of us, we want the, the uh, safe middle, don't we? You know, the Greeks' philosophy was don't be extremely hot or cold, don't be extremely uh, righteous or unrighteous, just be in the happy middle. Uh, the problem with that when it comes to God and holiness and salvation is we don't want, we don't want the, the comfortable middle. We want to be extreme because that's what you see God is. God is extreme when it comes to His holiness, His jealousy, and things pertaining to life and death. So how extreme is God? We'll come back to Phineas in a minute. 
How extreme is God? Think about this. Uh, God told Adam and Eve in the garden, you can do anything and everything. One prohibition, don't eat from this tree. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge. The one thing that's forbidden, they do. And God warns them, if you eat from the tree, you'll die. They eat, and spiritually they die that moment. Suddenly they know, I'm ashamed. I don't want to see God. I don't want God to see me. I've got a, a barrier in my relationship that didn't exist before. And hundreds of years later, they die physically. And guys, just think of this for just a second. It's impossible for us to sort of chronicle or go back. Every death, though, that's ever occurred on this planet, every act of violence, every death in any or every phase has all come from one sin and the seed of death, that sin planted in the human race. Sin and death are extreme. They're radical. If you sin, you will die. And when Christians, Paul uh, picks this up in Romans 8, when Christians sin, we don't lose eternal life, but you'll still experience elements of death. Paul makes that clear. Sin and death are extreme, and so God deals with them extremely. He has to. Life and death is at stake. Sin is absolute in the fruit of death, and to deal with sin and death, it brings God's use of very extreme means. So since the fall, God's been at work to crush this element of sin and death and bring in life. And so you just think about a little bit of the Old Testament. Isn't it fascinating that in only six chapters in the Bible, you go from man and woman in paradise to the corruption of mankind is so great, God says that every intention of their heart is evil continually, so fully so, and understand this isn't someone doing something, this is God, that God floods the earth so by God's hand and the waters of the flood, God kills every man, every woman, every boy, every child on the earth except Noah and his family. Now, I would call that extreme. So does God hate those people? And we say, Guys, at the end of the day, it's because God's moving to life. He's amputating so that He preserves life, right? Because what happens after the flood? So a righteous group is planted again on the earth that has the knowledge of God. Their children have the knowledge of God and God starts over. So God brought about the death of all life on the earth except Noah and his family because He's starting over to preserve life. That's His goal at the end of the day. Isaiah says judgment and death are God's strange work. It's not what's characteristic of, of Him. He's after life, but in order to preserve life in the human body or frame or person writ large, He has to do these things of amputation. That's exactly what you see in the flood. If you go into our story earlier at the Exodus, if you're in Egypt when this happens, and on the night of the Passover, and remember there's not a human hand raised here, the text is clear. Every firstborn in every family in Egypt, doesn't matter how old they are, doesn't matter how young they are, they die that night by God's doing if they weren't in a household covered by the blood of the Lamb. They all die. And there's weeping and there's mourning throughout Egypt. And again, we ask, does God do that because He loves to cause pain and loss and separation? And we say, no, 
You remember the whole thing was, God said, I'm going to move against Pharaoh and Egypt until they not only will let you go, because Pharaoh wouldn't, let God's first son, he's called it my eldest son, my first son in Exodus 3, till God lets, till Pharaoh lets God's people go in the Exodus. The whole point was, Pharaoh and Egypt will be compelled to release my people who I'm taking into the land of promise. The goal was life, it wasn't death. There's lots more we could say about the Passover that we won't. Uh, in our story, uh, when God's people polluted themselves by incorporating idolatry, bringing in death, He had His own people slay not only the Midianites, but fellow Jews as well. And He did that so that people could find life forever. Think of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. God consumed thousands of people. The earth swallowed families. The fire from heaven came down on the, the leaders who'd rebelled against God's authority in Moses. God was amputating cancer. God was preserving life by bringing about death. You'll see this in Deuteronomy 13. God commands death in the law to anyone who introduces idolatry to Israel, to His covenant people, because it will kill them, and He knows that. So God's extreme in holiness, in justice, in loyal love. God's perfection is at work in history to glorify Himself by displaying His absolute commitment to life, in part by judging sin, by removing those elements that work against His plans to redeem a people to Himself. And you see that particularly in the Old Testament, and that absoluteness of perfection in all that he does leads to the most extreme act of violence, justice, and mercy the world has ever seen. One of the things that I would encourage you, if you uh, have conversations with people who know what God commanded in the Old Testament, or have read these stories, or you have questions yourself, the place to always go is to the crucifixion, to Jesus' death on the cross, because there's been no more violent act done in the history of the world than the crucifixion of Jesus. So God the Son takes on our limited mortal frame. Deity, you know, timeless, spaceless, takes on our humanity so that He can be physically assaulted, beaten. Isaiah says He's scourged beyond recognition. If you'd looked at Him, you wouldn't have known who it was. He's nailed wrists and feet to a cross. He's suspended above the earth he's hung between earth and heaven and the picture there is heaven doesn't claim him and earth doesn't claim him and it's at that moment in his suffering you remember in his extreme moment of suffering jesus cries out to the father my god my god why have you forsaken me no one has experienced isolation or loneliness from others or from god more fully than jesus has in other words no one can accuse god of of failing to have empathy or understanding or God doesn't care. You get to the crucifixion of God the Son and you say, nope, He knows. He knows physical pain. He knows spiritual pain. He knows separation. He didn't have to come down to save you and I, but He said, I want to. This is our plan. So Jesus on the cross is the ultimate response. If you can't figure anything else out to say to yourself or to others who are questioning why God would do that, the crucifixion, God the Son dying for your sins and mine so that we could be forgiven and enjoy God forever, that is the ultimate answer to our questions about 
Lord, why this? Why that? Why that way? Did that really happen? Christ on the cross is the ultimate answer to all of that. And that's according to God's foreordained plan. So through Jesus' death and resurrection, God would ultimately and finally put death to death, consign evil to the flames of hell, rule and reign gloriously in fellowship with His redeemed people in a new heaven, a new earth, where righteousness rules forever and nothing harmful or out of place is ever heard or seen. That's where all of this ultimately goes. God has gone to extremities to preserve life and redeem a people for Himself that will enjoy Him forever. It's an extreme work. And God's, the, the extreme work of God is not over. Uh, hopefully we pray, we think, we say, uh, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. So depending on your eschatology, the rapture or the rapture and the second coming are the same thing. This is the second coming. And look at the language used here. Uh, Jesus, this isn't Jesus on Palm Sunday. You know, on Palm Sunday, Jesus rides in. He's on a little donkey. Kings rode donkeys. It's, that's not, uh, it's not humiliating, but it's a little donkey. But when He comes back, the text in Revelation 19 says, He's a warrior king on a warrior horse. He's on a great white horse. He judges and makes war. His eyes are flames of fire. He has crowns on His head. He's clothed in a robe that's dipped in blood. This is a bloody king coming back to wage war against all who have oppressed his people and resisted his rule it says the armies of heaven come with him on white horses war horses from his mouth comes a sharp sword what does he do to the nations he doesn't pat them on the head they lived in opposition and rebellion to him he strikes down the nations he rules them with a rod of iron you know, this scepter that Jesus brings back, it's not gold, it's not silver, it's not precious metals. It's iron because He's smashing humans and all the human efforts that have rebelled against His righteous reign. He is, at the end of the day, King of kings and Lord of lords. Guys, we conclude God is extreme. He's nothing short of that. He's extreme in His holiness, in judging sin, in bringing life, and He does all that ultimately through Christ. If God's extreme in these arenas, you and I can afford to be extreme also. So think of this. In His humanity, Jesus is at the temple during Passover and He sees something in God's household. Now, go back in your mind to Phineas. Phineas is at the, the tabernacle where God dwells and he's upset because he's jealous for God and God's things. Jesus is at the temple where God the Father dwells and he's jealous for God and God's things. And what does he do? He gets extreme. And He knocks over the tables. They're cheating the Gentiles. The Jews are. Jesus says, you've turned My Father's house into a den of thieves. Jesus is extreme. And His disciples, I love this from John 2, 17. The disciples remember after this, I suspect they were shocked when He's doing this. You're in the temple and you're kind of getting a little wild here, Jesus. It says they remembered from Psalm 69.9, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was extreme and radical because He was zealous for God and God's things. So as we wind down, what does Christ-like zeal in God's church look like today? Right? We're being transformed into the image of Christ. What is Christ's faithfulness in zealousness? look like 
in you and I? And what does the faithfulness of Phineas, having God's kind of jealousy for God and God's things, look like for you and I today? Guys, this is really where, this is where we're landing. This is, these are all the things that I think are most important for you and I to take away from this passage for us today. Uh, you and I aren't drawn swords. We're not putting on guns to go shoot down a terrorist, those who live in opposition to God. That's not the kind of warfare we're waging today, but there's certainly a war taking place. I've got five things I'm going to cover about zeal and jealousy. And the first is this. It's the age of grace. God is not wiping out His enemies. He's turning His enemies into His children and His friends. And that's done through the proclamation of the Gospel. And you remember that Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The gates of hell are defensive. And this is exactly the imagery you see in Colossians 1 where Paul says through the proclamation of the Gospel, God is transferring people who are locked inside the kingdom of darkness And He's transferring them to the kingdom of His Son, the kingdom of light. And that's all done through the proclamation of the Gospel. Whether you're thinking of Gideons or other missionaries we support, or the conversations you and I, I hope, are occurring in work and play and the folks we hang out with neighborhoods, the Gospel is the message, Romans 1, that God uses to save people. When you and I proclaim the Gospel to others, when we support the proclamation of the Gospel, that is spiritual warfare. God says it's the Gospel that saves them, that overcomes darkness and sin and death in their life. We want to make sure folks hear the Gospel. That is spiritual warfare. Proclaiming the good news of Jesus that saves people out of not just futility on the earth, but eternal separation from God. We're supposed to be proclaiming the Gospel. And with that, you think of passages like Ephesians 6, the weapons of our warfare. We're called to warfare. Christians should have this holy zeal or jealousy, a battle-mindedness, but it's in the sense of the spiritual reality. So you remember uh, the Christian's means of warfare aren't a spear and aren't a sword, but they're given in a military language or imagery in Ephesians 6. And they all have to do with God's Word, faith in His Word, and prayer. So I've got a helmet of salvation, the knowledge of Christ and salvation. I've got the breastplate of Christ's righteousness. I've got the belt of truth, that's Jesus and His Word. My feet are covered with the Gospel, the Gospel of peace. I have a shield on my arm that is the shield of faith, that's confidence in God's Word. I have the sword of the Spirit in my hand, which is the Word of God. And it says in all of that, that whole passage sums up with, and I pray... When you and I hit our knees and pray, that's spiritual warfare. When you and I are sharing the Gospel with others, that's spiritual warfare. Guys, when you and I are hanging out in our Bibles, we're equipping ourselves for spiritual warfare. If you don't know what God has said, you can't have biblical faith. Faith is predicated on knowing what God has said. You cannot be effective in the spiritual warfare and proclaiming the Gospel and sharing with others if you don't know what God has said. It's an impossibility. So we do spiritual warfare through prayer, through through filling our minds with the Word of truth, believing it, acting on it. A lot of that has to do with what we say to others. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, or they're not merely mortal, but they're divinely powerful 
for the pulling down of strongholds. And a stronghold in our mind, maybe see a castle keep, but those strongholds, they are ideas, they are religions, they are philosophies that aren't the Gospel. And Paul says, you and I as believers, we have the truth and the Spirit, we have the ability to pull strongholds down as we proclaim the Gospel and the truth of God's Word. And so hopefully we're doing that. Uh, the next thing that I want to point out is uh, Muslims talk about jihad, and you know the word jihad means to struggle. And so on one hand they would say uh, it's jihad against the people of the book, Christians and Jews. It's, fi- it's physical, literal warfare. But they'll also point out to you that jihad is meant to start with the individual. It's the personal struggle within to overcome tendencies to evil. And that's the sense in which God tells us that you and I are called to a holy warfare against the sin that dwells in us too. And God is so radical in this. Matthew 5.30 says, If your right hand makes you sin or fall spiritually, cut it off, pluck out your eye. God doesn't want you to cut off your hand, by the way, or pluck out your eye. But it's the language of extremity, isn't it? Do anything to avoid sin. Do anything to avoid sin. You know, if you've lived long or you've lived this, you know that the promise of sin is always greater than the fulfillment. But what you'll find conversely is also true. The joy and the peace you get from righteousness is greater than you can imagine when we're playing in the mud pile of sin. And so Jesus says, be extreme. It's the language or the imagery Geisler talks about. Amputate something from your life to avoid sin. Be extreme. Colossians 3 puts it in the language of death. Put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, that was the sin at Baal. Baal of Peor was the sin of immorality and idolatry. Impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Ephesians 2 says the same thing. Don't live like pagans who are going to face the wrath of God. Put to death whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, put it to death. Guys, the third one, and the one that for me has been most meaningful, and and this is sort of an A to A prime comparison with what happened with Phineas. Numbers 25, God calls us to a holy zeal regarding sin in the church. Remember, Phineas was jealous that God was worshipped as He should be and not otherwise and it seems to me that God is purging the church today in ways no one could have predicted we want to have God's jealousy for his people and his church we want to have that sense that we've been betrothed to God Paul says in 2nd Corinthians he's betrothed us to Christ we're like a bride we're supposed to be singular in that devotion and that zeal But it sure looks like, without anyone planning it, it looks like God is purging, is bringing cleanse. It looks like He's overturning the tables in His church today. So, just in the last several years, there's at least three pastors of mega churches who have simply gone down in flames. The latest was just a week or two ago in Chicago. And, guys, the charges are these it's sexual immorality, it's inappropriate sex, and it's also been pride. Pride and the abuse of others. In two of the cases, it was pride and the abuse of others. And no one orchestrated these guys going down. 
but it happened anyway. And I think it's simply what God has been up to that he's been saying, I'm not putting up with this in my house. And so he's brought significant megachurch pastors down. Um, to the point also, uh, the, the appeal of worshiping Baal was sex. The appeal of worshiping Baal was not, that looks like a better statue, and we don't have a statue of our God, so that looks better. It was sex. And ha- most of the pagan uh, practices around idolatry were sexually focused. Now put that in our, put that in our setting today. You know, the church, if you look at any of the surveys, uh, men and women in the church are affected by pornography, which we would call sexual immorality today, just like Israel was at Baal of Peor. And, and frame it this way in our minds. This is helpful for me. What do we want to do for transformation? We want to hate what God hates. We want to love what God loves. So we want to put to death some things and we want a greater sense of holiness and purpose and affection for God Himself. So, if I could put my use of pornography in the imagery of Numbers 25, I'm entertaining myself with pornography and then I come into God's presence at the tabernacle or the temple. That's what we want to see in our mind. This sense of it's this unholy aberration. It's this unfaithfulness to God. We want to feel the weight of that because we want to hate the sin that God hates. And when we hate what God hates, it's easier to love what God loves also. We want to put some things to death so we can live. It's not about we just get rid of things, right? You guys know if you just try and get rid of things and there's a void, you just fill the void with something else. So, And, and by the way, all of us, we're, we're all affected by this in one way or another. We, we all have sin. But on this thing that's eating the church's lunch, We want to take a radical view of our sin and we want to say with Matthew 5, if if my smartphone causes me to sin, I throw it away. I go to an old dial phone. If my computer causes me to sin, I get rid of it. Or I put accountability measures on it. Or I use it only in the company of somebody else. Do you know what I'm saying? If we're tolerating sin in our lives, it's because we're not hating what God hates. We don't have a holy jealousy for Him the way He means for us to. And remember that His will for us is life. He's not taking away a nice toy. He's ridding us of poison so that we can really live and really enjoy that relationship He's created us to have with Him. So it's a matter of getting rid of things so that we can enjoy God and the life He means us to have. I mentioned uh, 1 Corinthians 5 is on your sheet as a reference. When the church practices uh, church discipline, someone's put out of the fellowship of the church because there's unrepentance and repeated sin. And we're always quick to say, and we hope and we pray, and we really do, for repentance and restoration. But the flip side of that is, Paul says there must be purity in Christ's church. God won't tolerate this in His house. That's the other side of that. Uh, Fourth, uh, God calls us to holy jealousy regarding the message of the Gospel. Guys, Paul cursed. He called the curse of God down in Galatians 1 on anyone that shared a Gospel that he hadn't promoted. He said, may they be accursed. And in Galatians 5, you find out specifically that Jews were telling Gentile men 
you're not really saved until you're circumcised. And to that, Paul says, I wish those guys telling you you need circumcision to be saved would castrate themselves. It's radical and it's extreme language because it's life and death on the line. So today, if uh, there are churches in the United States, historically denominations, that say unless you're baptized, you can't be saved. It's a perversion and it's a distortion of the God and Paul calls God's curse on those promoting a works-oriented salvation. In fact, most religions, this is true of all otherwise Christian religions that aren't preaching that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. If it's more than that, it's not the gospel. And Paul says they're cursed. May God curse them. Guys, for us today, the other element of this is things like the health and wealth gospel. It's a perversion. God has saved you. Uh, you are the center of the universe. God has saved you that, so that you can have life, health, and wealth here and now. It's like that's a strange story for people that follow Christ. And Jesus says, if they persecute me, they'll persecute you. But this gospel says, no, you get all the health and you get all the wealth now. And I say, I don't see that. Jesus says, if you love me and if you follow me, you'll get additional trouble in this world and in this life, not less. And guys, plus think of this, frame of reference is everything. If you're a Christian today in parts of Africa, Asia, China, parts of South America, to be known as an evangelical who trusts and follows Jesus means forfeiture of property, it means accusations, it means you can't use the village well, it means imprisonment, it means death without a trial. They're not buying the health and wealth gospel. Are we zealous over the gospel, the message of grace in Christ? God's grace through faith in Christ, period. We need to be. And last, regarding worship, uh, do we give God all our heart, mind, and strength in worship? If we think of worship primarily as what happens in a church on Sunday morning, we're probably missing it. Uh, this is worship when we get together around God's Word, when we sing God's praises. It is worship. But you remember the Scripture has a much, much greater vision of worship. It's we, we bow before God because He owns us. He owns us. He owns everything we have. Everything about us is His. That's worship, Romans 12, 1 and 2. So God wants all of us, not a little of us. So time, money, energy, focus, affections, you name it. Just like a spouse wants from their spouse all that's uniquely theirs. We want to be jealous in the way God is jealous. We're uniquely His. He's uniquely ours. He should get all of that affection that's meant only for Him. It's 2 Corinthians 11. It's the thought of the bride waiting for the groom. So does God get all of our affections? Or are we dissipating that someplace else? If we're not worshiping God with everything we are and have, we've got some form of idolatry going on. It's just a given. Phineas was praised. He was rewarded by God because he was faithful with a singular devotion to God's honor. And if you and I would entertain the notion of a similar Christ-like faithfulness, guys, we have to be radical and I don't mean in the cultural use of the term today. Radical means anything but radical today. We have to be extreme the way Phineas was extreme. We've got to be zealous the way Jesus was zealous. Nothing short of that will deliver the kind of faithfulness, Christ-like faithfulness, that you see in Jesus in the temple or in Phineas uh, 
in Numbers 25. So if you would, rise with me. The worship team will come up. And let's read uh, Scripture together. This is from Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 6. It has that thought of the unique relationship of the bride and groom. Read with me, if you would. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. 